Well, Merry Christmas to every one of you. If you have your Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter, chapter 3, page 808 in the church Bibles is where we're at this morning. I'm going to begin reading in just a moment, in verse, beginning in verses, verse 12, all the way to the end of the chapter. And get that out of my mouth. And as always, while you're turning there, if you have a question about what was said or sung or read this morning, I would do my best to try to answer that question for you on our time together is done. Okay, did you all get enough turkey? Yes. We should thank God for those things. What a, what a nice holiday this was. Verse 12. If any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, his work will be shown for what it is, because the day, capital D there, will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire. And the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is sacred and you are that temple. Do not deceive yourselves. If Any one of you thinks he's wise by the standards of this age, he should become a fool so that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile. So then, no more boasting about men. So what Paul has done is he's completed his thought from chapters 1 and 2. No more boasting about men. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours and you are of Christ and Christ is of God. Amen. May the Lord bless the reading of his word this morning. Would you please bow with me as we pray together and to seek the help that we need from our Father in heaven. And Father, we do praise you this morning on this lovely Lord's Day. We thank you that you are the God of power, of perfection, of beauty, and truth. We've come here, Father, to worship you, and you've brought us to this moment safely to hear you speak through your living word, the Bible. Please then, Father, we're in desperate need for you to be our teacher and to lift up those in despair, to correct the wayward, to strengthen the weak, to bring courage to the discouraged and warn the careless and build up your church, bringing glory to to your name and that is our concern this morning so please father if we have offended you or brought dishonor to your name then please forgive us and help us now as we open your word the bible for jesus sake we ask these things amen well paul has been confronting god's church in corinth most notably beginning in chapter three with just how out of place division is in god's church And it's not that division is impossible in God's church. It's just that it's completely out of place in God's church. Likewise, if you were with us last time, you'll remember that that we learned some basic lessons about God's church. And we learned about the nature of God's building, the church itself. And the first thing that we learned was that God is the designer of the building his church. Now remember, this isn't sticks and bricks. This is flesh and blood. God has planned this this occasion from all eternity. He set his love on the church and he has set his eye on the church before all eternity. Now just think about that. 
He has provided the blueprint from the pages of, the, of his word, the Bible. And by his providence, he's working out everything according to his purpose and to the praise of his glory. And that's why verse 10a, if your Bible's open, the grace God has given, the grace God have gi- has given is directly tied to the proper building of God's church. Because God is the designer of the church's building. We then learn that Jesus is the foundation of God's church, his building. That was verse 11. No one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. And as you think about this, this makes complete sense. Jesus Christ is our only hope for eternal life with God. Jesus Christ's righteousness is the only accepted righteousness by God and in God's heaven. And Jesus Christ is the only reason why there's no condemnation from God. It's certainly not based on our works. And the strength behind our sanctification is, guess who? Is Jesus Christ. Therefore, it becomes an inescapable obligation that the church builds not only this foundation on Jesus Christ, but the church is always preaching Jesus Christ. And loved ones, if the body of Christ has any other foundation or tries to add another addition to this foundation, then let me tell you what will happen. We will stagger in the realm of uncertainty. We will will, will stagger in the realm of moral perplexity. We will stagger in the realm of doctrinal uncertainty. Therefore, we lose the ability for good decision-making in light of eternity, in light of that examination that we just read about, in light of that great day. God is the designer of the church's building. Jesus Christ is the only foundation of God's church, his, his building. And then we learn that we are the workers in God's church, his building. Therefore, in all our works that we do as God's workers, we have to receive an amen from Christ as we build. God's building, built God's way, will never lack God's provision in every realm. The Father will never turn his back on the Son this way. So the local church then is fully gifted, fully functional, and fully funded. Because because not only is Christ the head of the church, but the honor of Christ's name is directly tied to the visible church. And what helps me think about these things is this. In the, in the earthly ministry of Jesus, as you see the ministry of Jesus in the Gospels, there you get a pattern and a principle of how the local church is to function and how she is to perform. In other words, how Christ operated, if you would, as he walked this earth it, by pattern and by principle is supposed to be the way the church of Jesus Christ operates as we walk this earth. And since all Christian workers are working on the building, and since all Christians have ministries and giftedness, if you haven't as of yet, listen carefully, if you have not found yourself to work in any meaningful, consistent way in this building project, the church, it's your privilege to enjoy being about your father's business. Thanksgiving holiday, a little more free time. I had a little more free time to watch just a 30 minutes of an Elvis movie, Elvis Presley. And I was reminded by this song that Elvis used to sing about the church's building. Listen to what he said. Not the way he sang it, but just the way I'm going to read it. I'm working on the building. It's a true foundation. I'm holding up the bloodstained banner for my Lord. Well, I'll never get tired, tired, tired of working on the building. I'm going up to heaven, oh yeah, to get my reward. To get my reward. 
Now, if you like, that is much of what we just read in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We then concluded, sorry about that if you don't like Elvis, but it's a good song and it made sense. We concluded that all the while as we work on God's building the church, all our works will be on that day, this is verse 13, examined by God. There'll be like a scrutiny on our work. So if your Bible's open, verse 5, God assigns the work. Verse 8, God gives the reward for our work. Verse 13, God is the only judge of our work. Which means every task in the church is tremendously important. Which means every task, no matter what it is in the church, holds eternal value. Which means there's absolutely no menial task in God's service, in God's church. And it also means there's going to be a judgment on our works. Not a heaven and hell judgment, no, no. Just a rewards judgment. And God, verse 13, is the only one qualified to judge our works. And because God is the only one qualified to judge our works, God determined to hold his fire, if you would, until when? The last day. Which means the judgment that we might put on ourselves or the judgment that we might put on our, our, our others is an unqualified, unnecessary, ir, ir, irrelevant judgment. And that was part of the problem in the Corinthian church. Everybody thought they knew the mind of God and were prepared to judge the church. And Paul says, no, no, there's a day coming for that, but it's actually the last day. And guess who's on the throne? None of us here. So Paul needed to remind them, God is the owner and the designer, Christ is the foundation and the head of the church, and we are the privileged workers. And as you think about it, it is a privilege to work for Jesus Christ. And the work that we do, do as we build on his foundation, verse 13, in a very real sense, no one will get away with any poor workmanship or poor motivation. That's the scrutiny. That's the test. It's going to be a test of quality, not quantity. Quality, not quantity. It's going to be on the motivation and the inspiration behind what and why we've been doing what we've been doing in God's building. I was thinking this morning, sometimes people use the church to vent all of one's disappointments out there. Somehow they're going to make it better or make it real or whatever in here. And that's not the way to do it because our motivation will be judged by God. The inspiration, the why we do what we do will be judged by God. And it will be based on the standard that God himself has provided. And you can see there in verse 12, if you, if you work your way from top to bottom on that little list of materials that Paul gave us, it represents decreasing worth and increasing uh, flammability. Okay? Decreasing worth, increasing flammability. In other words, Paul is saying it's possible to build in such a way that on that day, at the bar of God's judgment, no matter how successful we thought we were, no matter how hardworking we were, we, we, we will know that if the, if the motivation was wrong, much of our work will go up in smoke. If the work that we did, the materials that we built with, were wrong, it will go up in smoke because it lacked any eternal significance. And so the people say, but, but look at the crowds, they love it. And, and I felt good doing it. No, no, no. So what we thought was incredible was actually quite flammable. And then on that day, it goes up in smoke. Verse 13b, because the day will bring it to, to light. It will, it will be revealed with fire. Do you see that there? And fire in the scriptures is symbolic of divine judgment. 
Fire is a symbol of the Holy Spirit and the word of God, the, the basis of God's judgment. Jeremiah twenty three twenty nine Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks a rock in pieces? Jeremiah will also say, Is not your word, Lord, like a fire in my bones or shut up in my bones? Therefore, our service, our ministry, our preaching, our leading will be tested by fire. By our obedience to the word of God, which defines the plans and the purposes of God for his building the church. Which is why we say so often, if you've been here for just a few months, we know, you know that we say, think biblically about everything. Make decisions with your Bible wide open. Why? Well, because that is the standard that God will judge us. And God will not be comparing us to others in his judgment. So don't go around saying, well, I'm not like person X. They're so tremendous. They have X, Y, and Z, and all I have is Y. Don't think that way. What you do with what you've been given is part of the basis of God's scrutiny. So when we build with the right materials, gold, and we build with the right motivation, then it'll pass the test. But we start with the right materials, build wrongly on the foundation, then very quickly, what we had was gold, we'll turn to hay and, and wood and, and stubble, flammable. So if we're building with what the Bible tells us to do, then, then we're building with the right materials. If we're building with the right motivation, then the materials will pass the test and we will receive the reward. And just think for a moment about the generosity of God here. God gives the work, God gives the increase, God gives the grace, and God gives the plan, and God gives the power to perform, and yet God is happy to give us rewards. Now, I don't know about you, but I find that absolutely incredible. Absolutely incredible. You mean I get something even though you did everything? Yeah. Yeah, you do. That is the goodness of God, and we're not even close to that as we move through the text. But here's the central issue. The day... The day that is surely coming, a day which will make all the things we may chase after on this earth melt away in just a nanosecond. The day when time is forever lost in eternity. The day when the things that would drive us now and think give us significance will just, just melt away in a moment and forever. So Paul says, if you're going to build, build with the right material, build with the right motivation, build with the judgment in mind, but don't let it neutralize you. Let it, let it light a fire, if you would, underneath you. And although some of our work may very well be burned up, verse 15, we will not be burned up. If it, in the Bible, namely the work, is burned up, the, the builder will suffer loss, yes, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. So I, I think it's probably fair to say that all of our work, beginning with myself, has a mixed quality to it. None of us here will get it right 100% of the time, all the time. However, although our work has a mixed quality, because of what Jesus has accomplished on the cross, no amount of wood or hay or straw or rubbish can put us back in a kind of downward spiral to eternal destruction or make heaven less heaven for any of us in Christ. That's Romans 8, right? Therefore, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So yes, some of our work may go up in smoke. And yes, that's tremendously disappointing. However, do not fall foul of the evil one tempting you to despair. And thereby, you begin to doubt your salvation. We are not saved by good works. 
We are simply saved for good works. And none of our good works could ever be good enough to bring us into heaven and to make us right with God and to God, uh, grant, have God grant us his eternal blessing. And that's our introduction. That, that's always last time. Now what we do is we find Paul continuing on in this uncomfortable theme of destruction, beginning in verse 16, but happily ending in verse 23. So if you received a worship folder in the back, there's our three points that we'll be working through. So there's a question to be answered. That's our first point. A deception to be avoided. And then a promise to be enjoyed. Okay, first of all, then a question to answer. Verse 16. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? And so this is a rhetorical question that has to get a big fat yes. Paul is just reminding them of the basic Christian truth. This is general, foundational, self-evident truth. They, the Corinthian church, we, the Cohasset church, are a temple of God. Together, together we are the temple of God. Now this would have been especially significant to say a Jewish Christian who understood that the temple of God in the Old Testament signifies the very place where God's presence dwelled. So God had manifested himself to his people in part by placing his glory. Think of this. This is what the Old Testament calls the Shekinah glory in the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant then had been taken and included in the temple. And so if you wanted to go meet with God, then go to the temple. That was a stick and brick temple. So when the people of God thought about the temple, they always thought about God dwelling there, that the very presence of God was somehow placed there. Now, Paul says, in the same way that God dwelt in his temple, uh, giving his presence in the Old Testament, now, after Christ's victory at the cross, resurrection, ascension, and following Pentecost, God has given himself in a whole new distinctive temple. And the church, again, not sticks and bricks, mind you, the church, the assembly of God's chosen people, there's no singular here. It's together we are now the dwelling place of God. God's presence dwells by his spirit in his people. And the context here is corporately and not individually. Later on in chapter 6, verse 19 of 1 Corinthians, he'll speak as individuals on being the dwelling place of God, but there it is matters of personal responsibility and moral purity. Here, however, it is a corporate responsibility, telling us the answer to the question that needs to be answered is, yes, we do. We know now the local church in Corinth was the dwelling place of God, and yes, the local church, the assembly of God's chosen people everywhere is the dwelling place of God. Now, that's why when people say uh, they're not into the local church, but just into the church universal, we need to ask them some questions. You need to ask them, well, how do you apply the one another principle found all over the New Testament to the church universal? Because the only meaningful way that you can apply these things is if you have a local church. And that's how you can apply the one another aspects in the New Testament. Forgive one another, love one another, serve one another. That's when the principles of worship become obvious. That's when the responsibilities of meeting together become obvious as we build each other up. Which is why our building collectively together will be examined and judge. Hebrews 10.25 then has no significance at all if you just believe in the church universal. And if you say, well, I'm going to go out into the fields and say the fields are my church. Listen, you know, that might sound like uber spiritual and, and might be very freeing. And yeah, the fields are alive with the sound of music. But the fields are not the local church. That's too easy. 
Hebrews 10.25 does not have any meaningful significance if we treat this church like a vacation spot, like a spa. You see, when God's people are brought together for God's purposes in a unique way, God's spirit dwells there, which is why Hebrews 10.25 says, do not forsake the assembly of yourself together, as it in that togetherness that the spirit abides in a unique way. So, it's not in the notes, but there's a reason that I get excited every Sunday morning when I get myself cleaned up to get here. This is something that will happen no other, on no other occasion through the course of the week. Now, some in our day will say, well, and particularly in the Christian family, says, well, you don't have the Spirit of God if you don't have a certain type of gift. For example, tongues. Paul lays that all to rest in just a few verses. Untrue. Every genuine Christian has the Spirit in its fullness. And in our day, it's routinely said that among popular culture that everybody has the Spirit of God. They just don't know it. God's all-embracing. God is everything. Therefore, we've got it all. So, so we have to take different paths, but we're going in the same direction, headed towards the same destination. And the problem with that is that, that God's Word does not give us that liberty here. Nor in Romans 8, 9. Just let me read to you Romans 8, 9. You are not controlled by the sinful nature, speaking to Christians, but by the Spirit. If the Spirit of God lives in you, and if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. Therefore, it is belonging to Christ that the Spirit of God dwells in a person. And it is as Christ is the head of the church that the Spirit of God is revealed within God's people. This is Ephesians 2.20. We are being built together, together. To become a dwelling place which God lives by His Spirit. And that's the main thing about a local church. The main thing about a local church is not its size and it's not its programs. It's not its building, but it's God. That's the thing. So people come in and say, God is here. God is here. And that's the warning in verse 17. Do you see it there? So after he says, you know, you are God's temple and God's spirit lives in you, verse 17, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is sacred and you are that temple. That's plurality. That is not singularity. So remember, this is verse 17 is not a building issue. The building is not sacred. That day has passed. We care for it, yes. We are stewards of it, yes. But it's just sticks and bricks. It's not the temple of God. It is God's spirit dwelling in God's people together that is sacred. So then Paul says, if anyone attacks God's people, this temple, with notions of destruction, they themselves will be destroyed. Now I know just a few days after Thanksgiving that that sounds pretty uncomfortable. But why? I mean, read your Bible. Read your Old and New Testament. Sin brings death. That's the message of the Old Testament. That's the message of the New this is a precious temple and no one can come in and fiddle around with it or harm it or twist it the way they like. No one. And that is how much God loves his church. So to render a church with division, as in the case of the Corinthian uh, circumstance here, so they, had, they wanted division, they had corrupted doctrine. To do that to a church is to ruin it. And in those same terms, verse 17 says, God will deal with those responsible. And that's, a, that's meant to be a warning. Therefore, God will not let anyone mistreat or neglect his own living temple. So we can't. We can't do this to ourselves, and we can't do this collectively. Under the old covenant, if a person defiled God's temple, they were either cut off from the community, 
or in some circumstances, they were put to death. Now listen to the interpreter's Bible commentary on this, just to, to kind of get the gravity of this, this uh, verse. The church, the community of believers, is God's chosen temple. It is sanctified by the indwelling of His Holy Spirit, and it must be treated as such. Nothing profane, irreverent, blasphemous must be allowed to violate its sacredness. The spirit of worship or service of fellowship and humility must be manifested in its very atmosphere. God will wreck the man who wrecks his chosen dwelling place, the assembly of his called people, the church. Now, loved ones, this means that this body is precious and God is passionate about its preservation. So that's our first heading, a question to answer. And our understanding in this will govern much of how we approach life in this local church. Secondly, then, there is a deception to be avoided. That's verse 18. Do not deceive yourselves. If any of you think you are wise by the standards of this age, you should become fools so that you may become wise. Okay, so ask yourself the question, how does this fit in with what Paul has been saying? Well, this is what I want to let you know. Paul has gone full circle, finally, from his opening words of chapters 1 and 2 on worldly wisdom and human wisdom and human lines of thinking and just how uh, they have no value whatsoever in this temple, in this church context. And what Paul is doing then is putting his finger on the very essence of the problem. Because you see, all the damage done in the Corinthian church and all the damage done in any of God's churches comes about when one begins, Romans 12, to think too highly of themselves. And that's what happened in the church in Corinth. And, and when one thinks too highly of themselves, then they are at the, the worst part of their ability to bring damage to others. When one thinks too highly of themselves or thinks themselves wise, well, they throw themselves first in everything. They close their Bibles, and thus they close themselves off from the very wisdom of God, and they replace it with, verse 19, human wisdom, which is foolishness in God's sight. And this is postmodern man at his, at his worst. We know everything. Just get us in the direction. Point us the way, and we'll fix it. We'll close our Bibles. We'll ignore the fact that there's a judgment. We'll ignore the fact there's a God. We'll ignore the fact there's a Christ. He's the only Savior of this world. We'll ignore all that, and we can fix this. That is the deception to avoid. So when we think too highly of ourselves, we begin to take the standard of this age of what is good and right and desirable. We take the wisdom of this age, which has no meaning and no reference or reverence to God, and we think, you know what? That will do. And the Bible says, no, no, it will not do. Because human wisdom and what the standards of what is successful in our age are useless at the core of what it means to live before a holy God. Useless in what it means to live life now fully committed to God's church, his people. It's useless in light of eternity. It's useless in light of our examination. And it is useless in light of God's judgment on those without Christ. If you remove human wisdom, you lose nothing and you can be okay with being thought of a fool in the world's estimation so that in actual fact, Paul says, you might become wise. Well, why? Well, because the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. Now listen, this doesn't mean we shouldn't thank God for smartphones and smart cars and smart buildings. That's not what Paul's saying. In this place, in this context, all that stuff has no significance whatsoever. Intellectual pride is always the last citadel to be defeated. 
Intellectual pride keeps men and women from Christ, keeps men and women from, from, from any sense of usefulness in Christ. And we have to avoid it at all costs. Intellectual pride, in other words, uh, close Bible. Says Quintilian. Quintilian was a man who lived many, many years ago. They would have no doubt become excellent scholars if they would have not been so fully persuaded of their own scholarship. Right? Smarty pants. Which is why great students show up for class. Great students know they need class. And great students do their homework for class. There's a a Persian proverb that goes like this. He who knows not and knows not that he knows not is a fool. Avoid him. He who knows not and knows that he knows not is a wise person. Teach him. So if you're here and so much of your self-esteem, so much of how you value yourself or how you measure others is by your intellect and what your intellect has brought you or bought you, or you think that you're going to get really smart so some future day you're going to have this great future, Paul just says, be careful. Don't fall for that deception. And then he quotes two places from the Old Testament. He catches the wise in their craftiness. That's that. That's verse um, 19 and 20. He catches the wise in their craftiness. In other words, the wisdom of this age will have its aha moment. Caught you. On that day, the last day, it will just burn. It will burn. It will be shown for what it is. And again, verse 20. He, the Lord, knows the thoughts of the wise are futile. Again, another. Aha! Caught you. You see, worldly wisdom was good, but it just doesn't go far enough. It doesn't do anything in light of eternity. And that is the warning from falling foul to thinking that our own intellect shows us, uh, or allows us, excuse me, the privilege to have unbelief, or to be superior, or to have uh, things rearranged the way we like them in, in light of what God has said through his word about his temple, the church. And if that is the case, let me tell you exactly what will happen every, every time. Fruitless and useless. useless. Fruitless and useless. And it may very well be hindering us from bearing any lasting fruit at all. Anything that has uh, any value when the day comes for the scrutiny of our works. And that takes us to our final point. And things are going to turn better now. A question to be answered. That's verses 16 and 17. Don't you know that you are the temple of God and God's spirit dwells in you? Well, now you do. Live accordingly. There's a deception to be avoided. Verses 18 to 20. Don't fall foul of thinking that human wisdom is the way to go. No, Bible open. Think Christian about everything. Think with eternity always in mind. Think, 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 think that way because all that other stuff in God's estimation, useless, fruitless, will burn up easily on the last day. Finally then, a promise to be enjoyed. And that begins in verse 21 all the way to verse 23. So then Paul says, when you think this through, okay, when you think this through, now remember the case in the Corinthian church was there was division everywhere, everybody had their own little groups, their own little tastes and preferences, and it was dividing the church, and Paul was very upset about this, and so Christ was very upset about this, these things should not happen. So that's why Paul says in verse 21 there, there's no reason to boast about men, or men are women. There's no reason to be arguing about who you really like, or who's your guy, or who's your gal. And it's blasphemy then to put people and preachers in the place where you diminish the work of Jesus Christ at Calvary's cross. So you don't attach unwarranted uh, importance to your teachers, whether they're here or they're on the internet. 
Because it's Christ's message. It's Christ's work. It's Christ's giftedness. It is Christ's cross that led us all to this lovely place. Uh, chapter 1, verse 30 of 1 Corinthians. It's because of Christ that you're in Christ, Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. That is, Christ is our righteousness, our holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And so that's why Paul writes in verse 21, no more boasting about men. Zip it, as our mothers would tell us. Calvin on this. How little security there is in leaning on an insubstantial shadow as man. So why would we wrap our security in a man or a woman? The Father told us, Matthew 17, the Father, God the Father told us to listen to the Son. And therefore, Jesus Christ alone is the authority of which we attach ourselves to. Teachers and pastors teach are under Christ's word. And we should hold these words and heed these words insofar as they can be clearly seen arising from Christ. That's why I always say, look at your Bible. If your Bible is open, I'm not trying to irritate you. I'm trying to help you. Look at the Bible. Does it say what I'm about ready to explain? This is why we don't have popes. We don't have a hierarchy or anything that would exalt a man or a woman. That's just terrible. It's Christ. Hence, here's the promise to be enjoyed. This just popped in my mind. I know I've told you this before. Martin Lloyd-Jones, when he, 23 years old, comes to this church. He was a very popular man, very gifted preacher. And the church had this big poster with a big, nice picture of Martin Lloyd-Jones. He's coming to our church and he might even be our pastor. Oh, goody. Martin Lloyd-Jones sees the picture of him on the, on the, the uh, poster, promotional poster. And he looks at them at the end of his talk. No, excuse me. Before his talk, he looks at them and says, please do not ever do that again. Do not ever do that again. What was he saying? He was saying, what are you doing this? What is this? He's an ugly man, by the way, but he's dead now. But anyway, why would you do that? Don't ever do that. Sorry, Mr. Jones. <laughs> he was. He's just, he's a, what was it? That he's had the face that only a mother could love. It was, <laughs> you can Google him. But maybe I'm wrong. So there you go. Okay, back to the promise we need to enjoy. Verse 21b, all things are yours. That's what Paul is saying. Look at the list there. They're the three amigos. You know, if you tie yourself to one guy, that's all you got. They're simply servants. They're here to help us. It's the same with the rest of the list. Verse 22. These are all our big enemies, right? World, life, death, present, future. These are our tyrants, aren't they? The world, I have to bow to it. I got to fall prey to its fears. I got to just kind of, you know, act like I belong to it in a sensible way. Life, I've got to have life. Death, I got to avoid it. I need to drink like carrot juice and try to extend my life two more years. Uh, uh, The present, I better live it up now because this is all I have. Future, I cringe because of the future. I'm worried, you name it, as a young person, I am worried about the future. Paul says, no, no, no. Now you sound like you have no Christ. Now you sound like all things are not yours. What does he write there? All things are yours. What can separate you from the love of God? Romans 8, what can separate you from the love of God in Christ? Nothing. Life, no. Death, no. Present, no. Future, no. There's a line from a hymn that says, Something lives in everything that Christless eyes have never seen. Paul's putting our eyes on this. This is breathtaking. I don't even pretend to understand it all, but I want to understand it all, and I want you to understand it all. In Christ, all are yours, and you are of Christ, and Christ is of God. Life, death, 
present, future, the world do not set our paces. They do not frame our life. And those fears are infinitely small in the light of Christ's power, glory, return, judgment, etc., etc., etc. But if you haven't got beyond, I belong to Apollos, or I really like that thing, or worldly wisdom, or you're stuck in time with all your thinking, then Paul would say, you don't have anything. God gives the work, God gives the gift, God gives the growth, God gives the judgment. And guess what? Verse 23, all are yours and you are of Christ and Christ is of God. So let me just conclude by saying this. I mean, this helps us not to walk around so much as a Humpty Grumpty. I mean, always complaining about anything, fearful of economic reports, fearful of every plague, uh, looking for trouble because we're just ticked at life, acting like all there is is all there is. Or acting like uh, John Travolta in one of those movies where he's the man, you know, uh, staying alive. Maybe that's the one. I'm not sure. Like, he's the man. It's no. Or maybe this is the worst. We chase after religious charlatans who, who promise us that they have the secret that Christ somehow left out. We see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. You see, all the things that trouble us in life and death and the world and the future and the present, here's the thing. It's all yours anyway. You are of Christ and Christ is of God. For it is only Christ, in Christ, that we have all this. Now that's a promise. And and I'm just going to say it like this. That is a promise that I suspect that none of us have really enjoyed to its fullest potential. I know I haven't. All things are yours in Christ. That is a promise that I want to learn how to enjoy and do it right in this old beat up fallen body of flesh. So that I can dip it here when it's bad and open it up when it's good. Right? Well, why? Well, only one reason why. All things are yours. But why is that? Well, only one reason. You ready? It's so basic. Jesus Christ came into this world as a baby. He lived a perfect life. He died our death on Calvary's cross. He has risen from the dead. He's ascended at the right hand of authority and power. And right now, this is perfect, right? Every, every time, just like the kids in the kingdom, every time we need an all, all is ours promise and it fits God's providence perfectly, the son just gives the father one of those. He promised it, father. All are yours. And they're in Christ. And I'm in you. It's beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. It's precious. And the great thing, the great thing is that it's all true. It's all true. Let's bow together and let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you for these tremendous truths. They're almost overwhelming to be quite honest with you, God, as we think through our lives, at least personally. And so we want to get this right. We want to live in light of this truth. We want to be careful as we build. We want to be thoughtful, prayerful, and scriptural, certainly. We want to be mindful, Father, that you love this place. This place is precious to you because people are precious to you. And as we collect ourselves together, we are this wonderful temple that you yourself have chosen to build. And now, Father, we've been given a good warning so that we would build rightly and smartly. And we rely not on the wisdom of this world or not on the wisdom of ourselves, but we rely on the wisdom that comes from you the wisdom of heaven. And now, Father, we find that we can settle down 
not be so anxious about things and even in some measure greedy about things. But we can know that everything is already ours and providence displays this perfectly and the last day will show it all very clearly. And so we thank you that in Jesus Christ these are promises that we can enjoy. And Father, have mercy on any of us here this morning that are not in Christ, that have chosen up to now to abandon you or not believe you. And we pray, Father, that you would awaken them so they would say yes to Jesus Christ, yes to his gospel, yes to his kingship and friendship. And we ask all these things in the name of the one who suffered and died for our sins, Jesus Christ. Amen.